So this morning we are going to be continuing in the book of 1 John. You guys can turn there if you'd like. And I just want to pray for us as we um, enter into the scripture this morning. Father God, I thank you for your faithfulness. And I just pray that you would open up our heart and our mind to your word, God. That you would um, just give me the right words to speak. And um, just rightly divide your word, Father. That we would be transformed um, more and more into the image of Christ. And love you um, in a deeper way. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I got a mosquito up here that's trying to get me. So if I look like him, he's, he's, he's really trying hard to get me. He's not going away for some reason. All right, 1 John um, chapter 2 is what we'll be getting in today in verse 1. And just a quick question as we dive into this scripture that I'd like each one of us to consider is if you were to rate your level of peace um, from a 1 to a 10 in your life and your circumstances, um, what would you rate Rate your level of peace, your level of confidence, maybe assurance is another way we could put it. And you know, how we rate ourselves, I think, in a lot of ways, really matters depending on what we're going through. That if we're not going through a lot of tough times, if we're kind of in a comfortable, easy season of life, um, it's easy to rate ourselves maybe as a nine or a 10 because there isn't a lot of tribulation in our lives. But when we're going through really hard things, when things are confusing, we don't feel like maybe we have the answers to some of the, the problems in our circumstances. It's really hard to keep peace and assurance and confidence um, at a high level. And that's kind of what's happening here in the book of 1 John is John is writing to a group of Christians who were having a really tough go at it. There was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of struggle and trial in their life for a few reasons. One, during this time, it was hard to be a Christian, period. There was persecution. Um, there was a lot of just ostracizing of Christians in their communities, hard to get a job, different things like that going on in the various churches that John's writing to. So number one, the Christians were struggling because of persecution. But number two, there was a lot of division that started to happen in the church. And I don't know if you've ever been a part of church hurt, if you've ever been a part of a church split, a church struggle, um, but those situations can be very painful. And not just because the church splits or there's less people coming to the church or whatever. It's really because of the relationships that are lost in the process, right? Because when we go to church and we're connected with a body of believers that we consider to literally be the body of Christ. People we love, people we trust, people we're committed to. Um, when that fractures, it's much deeper than just um, your community basketball team doesn't want to play anymore or whatever it might be. But these are people who we love and we're connected to by Christ. And when that fractures, it really can get down to the depths of our heart. It can be pretty confusing on why um, that happens sometimes. That was happening in this church. There was division and there was confusion amongst the different churches um, in Asia Minor. But along with this, not only was there division, but there was false teachers and false doctrines that really were the main cause of division within these churches. So they were preaching things and they were pulling people away from the original churches and they were starting their own church. So it was getting pretty confusing for um, the congregation because there was a group of people who were saying that what the apostles were teaching, you know, it was okay, but it wasn't really right. And what we have is right. and What they have is wrong. And so now all of a sudden people were having to choose sides within the church and it was really hurtful. And some people were confused because these people who were starting their new churches, the false teachers, um, six months ago seemed to be dedicated on fire followers of Christ. 
But now they're starting their own churches. They're denying key truths of Christ and they're living lives of sin. And all of a sudden the church is thinking, what in the world is going on? And their own confidence and their own assurance and their salvation started to be shaken of how do we know? How do we know if we're really following the truth? How do we know if we're a real Christian? How do we know if we're in the assurance of the blood and the payment of Jesus Christ. And they started to ask these questions. So what first John does, um, or the apostle John does through the Holy Spirit in this scripture or in this book is he writes a letter of clarity of getting down to kind of the basics and specifics of the Christian faith of how we can have assurance and how we can have confidence even in the midst of trials and division and heresy and church struggles. How can we remain confident and assured? Um, we had uh, Nate Markhart come a few uh, weeks ago. He was a four-time MMA world champion and helped do some outreach um, down on East Overland. And we did a little fight clinic um, that he came in and taught some of the kids how to box. And, you know, he, he's beat some of the best um, fighters really to ever fight in the UFC. Amazing resume. So I'm thinking he's going to come into this class and we got mainly new, new boxers. You know, everybody's basically new to the sport. So I'm thinking he's going to come in and show us all this great, awesome stuff. But what Nate came in to do is he showed us the basics and how to do the basics really, really well. And because he knows as a good fighter, if you don't have those things down, it doesn't matter how much stuff you know if we can't really understand and be assured of the basics. And that's what um, the Apostle John does here in the book of First John. And for maybe the Bible nerds who like this kind of stuff, um, I got some statistics for you. This helps me study the Bible. Whenever there's repeating themes in the scripture, usually that's an emphasis that something's really important is being said. And so the book of 1 John is only five chapters long. Um, in my little Bible, it's three and a half pages, not, not a real long book of the Bible. Has anybody got a quick guess how many times the word love is used in the book of 1 John? 40, 62, we'll meet a little, well, a little bit closer to 40, 46 times, 46 times the word love is used in the scripture. So love is going to be a really important aspect of how we find um, assurance and clarity in our walk with Christ. The second word that he uses a lot is the, the word know, K-N-O-W, to know, to be assured of something. And in the Greek, this word means um, not just an intellectual knowing, but a spiritual knowing, a confidence and assurance, a relationship type knowing. And anybody have a guess how many times this word's used? 35, 35 times the word know is used um, in this scripture. And there's actually, depending on your version, it can be up to 40, but... Um, the last word that's used a lot is sin. Anybody know how many times the word sin is used? First John, guess. 27, 27 times. So we see love, know, and sin. And obviously the word God is used over and over and over as well. But we see these really basic elements of Christianity. Knowing, knowing having assurance, loving not sinning and, and what sin is and who God is, who Jesus Christ is. So these are the things that John is hitting on over and over and over. And I think for us today, we might find ourselves in a couple different um, categories that the church then did. There were some people who were very discouraged and the reminder of these basics helped them get back on track and get a little fire in their relationship with Christ again. I think there was people in this church who were fighting hard for truth, that they were fighting against these false teachers and being reminded of the truth was an encouragement of, hey, I am on the right track. I am doing what God wants. And they were encouraged by hearing what John had to write. 
But I think there's also two groups of people who are probably uncomfortable maybe reading this scripture. One would be those who are maybe wandering, those who are starting to backslide in their faith, those who are starting to live kind of a double life. And the book of 1 John, because it's kind of about the basics, it's super black and white. And we're gonna read some scriptures today that are extremely challenging. And to be honest with you, there's just some way that John writes that's different than maybe the other um, books in the New Testament that's very blunt. And I think sometimes we can be offended when things are very blunt, right? If someone corrects you, and they can say it in a diplomatic way where they're trying to encourage you and tell you. And sometimes people just come right at it and it can be hard to receive that sometimes. And, and uh, the apostle John does that in this, in this scripture. But when we're wayward, sometimes that's what we need to get back on track. We need hard truth to get us back on the line with Christ. And also first John, or in First John, he's warning the church on how to discern false Christians, how to discern wolves in sheep's clothing. That's something that Jesus warned us of, the apostle Paul warned us of. Now in 1 John, he's warning them of because these Christians who had people in their church that were wolves in sheep's clothing, when they didn't know that and these people turned out to be bad guys, it's super, super confusing. Of, hey, I trusted this person. Now they, not, they aren't who I thought they were. And he tells us warning signs to be able to discern um, a false Christian from someone who is genuinely serving Christ. So we're starting First John. Um, I'm going to read verse one and two, kind of with that background of why he's writing some of these things. He says, "My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only." but also for the sins of the whole world. So he starts out this letter by saying, my little children. And that might sound funny to us, but um, the apostle John was an older guy and he had started these churches. And so he was a spiritual father to these people. So before he gets into this hard information, these hard challenges, he's reminding them of his relationship with them. Hey guys, remember, I love you. Remember, I've been there since the moment that you accepted Christ. I've been encouraging you. I've been helping you. So what I'm about to say to you isn't because I'm mad, isn't because I'm angry, but it's because I love you. And I want you to know the truth of Christ and the truth of the gospel. And the second thing he tells us is kind of a main purpose of this letter. He says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So a huge part of the scripture and a huge part of 1 John is to help us stop sinning. That God doesn't want us to live a, a life of sin, but he wants to give us the power to overcome our sin that we can walk in righteousness and that we can walk in the light. And what we're gonna look at here for a minute is what is sin? And I wish um, we had, maybe Ken could help us get a little computer program you could vote or something on the TV. I think it would be interesting. But I would be interested if we went across the congregation today and everyone gave their definition of sin what, what comes to your mind? How would you explain sin if someone were to ask you, what does it mean? What does it mean to sin? In my experience, sometimes talking with people, um, we can have different perspectives on what sin really is. On a really basic level, sin is missing the mark and ultimately falling short of God's glory. Whatever God has set as a standard, if we don't meet that standard, that is sin, that we've fallen short of what God has asked us to do. But maybe in a more specific way, I think there's 
two different aspects of this. I think there can be um, sin that is almost a sin of ignorance, that we're maybe a new believer, or we don't, we're still growing in our faith, and there are certain things we don't know in the scripture, and we may make choices of sin that we aren't totally sure of. And I think God's very patient with us as he helps us grow in our faith. But there's another form of sin where we just are in rebellion. We know what to do and we know what's right. And even if we don't know what's in the Bible, the Holy Spirit's convicting us and our conscience is convicting us that something isn't right, but we push that off and we do it anyways. And that would be more of a sin of rebellion. And I think there's two different aspects of this. One that I think is um, maybe the most prevalent is really comes down to self-worship. And what worship is, and kind of the, the focus of today, is devotion. What is our heart really devoted to? What do we think about? What do we meditate on? What controls the decisions we make in our lives? And self-worship says that what I want, what I desire, what makes me feel good, what helps me avoid conflict, what keeps me from being anxious, that's what's gonna control my life. It's those type of things are gonna control what I do, how I make decisions, where I spend my time, where I spend my money. And really what that is saying is I'm gonna worship my own comfort and worship my own thinking over worshiping God, over obeying what God would have me do, which ultimately is, worshiping ourselves. And we've been um, studying through Genesis, like I had mentioned. And one thing we've been kind of looking at lately is the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I actually just heard this this week um, that I thought I'd throw in the, the sermon today is that when we studied the book of Genesis, does anybody know where the tree of life was in the garden? Center, I hear some whispers. It's in the center of the, of the garden. So we don't know exactly how big the garden was, but the very first commandment that God gave Adam was that to eat of any tree of the garden that he had created was the first commandment that Adam could partake of anything he wanted in the garden. And the second commandment was accept the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there was all these things that Adam could, could enjoy, but yet Adam had to walk past all these good things and say, I don't want that, I don't want this, I don't want that, I don't want this, I don't want that, until he got to the center of the garden, then he sees the one thing he can't have, and he's thinking, hmm, maybe I want that tree, maybe that's what I want, even though God has told me not to, even though I could eat of all these other things, maybe that's what I want to indulge in, that's what I want to take. And for us, it's, it's very much the same thing. God has blessed us with so many things that is totally free for us to enjoy in Christ, whether it's the promises and scriptures, whether it's family, whether it's hobbies that God has given us. There's so many things that God has given us to enjoy, but yet at times we don't want those things, but we want the very thing that God has told us not to partake of. And we decide that our desire, what we want is more important than what God has asked us to do. The second thing that maybe can be a little bit more tricky, I think especially for Christians, I know for myself, um, is self-confidence. That we think we know what God wants and we think we know what we should do, but we don't really ask God. We don't really seek for wisdom. We don't really have a humble spirit to work it through, but we just do what we think we should do. And the Bible says we shouldn't lean on our own understanding, but that we should acknowledge God in all of our ways. But we don't really do that. We don't really acknowledge God in all of our ways, but we start to lean in on our own decisions based upon what we think is right and what we think um, is best. And a lot of times, you know, I don't think God is always as concerned about the decision we make on certain issues. I think some issues aren't necessarily inherently good or bad when it's how are you gonna invest your money or where are you gonna spend your time or how many basketball tournaments are you gonna take your kids to? I don't think there's always a perfect answer to those, but what God cares about, are you actually asking him? 
Are you actually with a humble heart saying, God, whatever you want me to do with this decision, I'll do it. But would you just guide me? Would you teach me? Would you direct me um, through your scripture and your spirit? That's what God wants because that's how you build a relationship. That's how you grow closer with Christ. Hebrews um, chapter 11 talks about this, um, verse six. And he says, I don't know if that one's up there or not, but he says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. So what the book of Hebrews says is that if we don't have faith, which means we're trusting God, we can't please God. No matter how many good things we do, no matter how hard we try, that pleasing God requires faith. Romans 14 says a real similar deal. Romans 14, 23 The second half of the verse simply says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So we can ask ourselves is, is, am I living my life by faith? If not, what the scripture is actually telling us is we're living in sin because we are living by our own understanding. We're living by our own strength. And ultimately what we're doing is rejecting God's source of love and rejecting God's source of guidance. And so we know in this scripture, when, when John's saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't, do not sin, we know a few things. We know that he wouldn't be writing this to the Christians if Christians didn't struggle with sin. So we know for every single Christian, this is something we're gonna wrestle with. We're gonna wrestle with rebellion. We're gonna wrestle with self-confidence. We're gonna wrestle with self-worship. It's something that's gonna be a daily battle. But what we also know with the apostle John writing this is that there is hope to overcome sin, that he wouldn't be telling us that he wants us not to sin if that was impossible, but that there is a possibility to overcome our sin and to live a life of righteousness in Jesus. And I think what's also clear in this is there's an expectation of righteousness that Jesus says, be holy for I am holy or be perfect for your heavenly father is perfect. But I think when we start to look at, again, the depths of sin and how much sin can actually get a hold of our heart, um, I think it's evident a lot of times in all my own life, we don't take sin seriously enough. I had somebody um, at the end of the last uh, Saturday night say a quote. I'm going to see if I can remember it now, but um, she said her husband always said it, and it was, sin will always take you further than you planned on going, and it'll keep you there longer than you planned on staying. And that's what sin does. It deceives us into thinking we're in control, and we're not. Sin will dominate our lives, and that's when, if you go to CR, that's the first step of really breaking habits of sin is to admit that we're powerless to change without God, that sin will trick you and make you think that you're in control when you're not. And then once you're there and you are entrapped in sin, you want to get out and you can't. And so sin has this way of reeling us in and all of a sudden we feel trapped in what we're doing. And ultimately, again, this isn't just about doing what's right and wrong, but it's about rejecting the love and the guidance and the promises and all the goodness that God has given us and saying, you know what, God, I don't want those things, but instead I want to do what I want to do. And I do not want to listen to you. Now we wouldn't say that out loud, but that's what our actions start to portray. There's a book, um, a, a prophet, a minor prophet um, called Hosea. And Hosea, God asks Hosea to marry a prostitute. And he marries this prostitute. And 
I have to imagine that was pretty difficult, right? Because this woman was not a repenting prostitute, someone who wanted to change, but she was someone who was going to continue to sin and be in her ways. And so as you read this book of Hosea, you feel pretty bad for Hosea because he's trying to be a good husband. He's trying to love his wife. He's trying to forgive her, but she just keeps sinning over and over and over, continues to do what she wants to do. And then when she needs help, she comes back to Hosea for help. But she never comes to him just because she loves him, but she just continues in this pattern of sin. And it's a pretty heartbreaking thing that God says to Hosea as he says, this is what it's like to be the God of Israel. That Israel continues to sin and continues to rely on themselves, continues to get themselves in trouble, continues to prostitute themselves out to the nations. And then when things get bad and they don't feel like they can handle things, then they come back for my help. And as soon as I help them, they go right back to what they were doing, going right back to being a prostitute. I think in many ways, if we're not careful and what John is writing here in 1 John is we can start to do the same thing to God. If we're gonna be doing, we're gonna live however we want and we're gonna do whatever we think is right and tell it's not quite working. And then we're gonna go ask God if he could help us. Then once he helps us, we're gonna go right back to what we were doing. Book of um, Jeremiah, I wanna read real quick. Um, Verse, or sorry, I'm gonna start with Isaiah 59. Verse two talks about the physical um, repercussions of sin. What happens between us and God when we continue to sin? And he says in verse two, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. One reason the apostle John is is pleading for the church not to sin is because sin interferes with our relationship with Christ. It interferes with our intimacy with him. Second scripture is Jeremiah 5, 25. And he says, "Um, your iniquities have turned these away and your sins have kept good from you. And again, that's the tragedy of sin is God wants us to have a life and to have it more abundantly. God wants us to have assurance and peace and joy. And again, not always happiness that things are going right, but that we can find joy in this life despite suffering, despite trials, and that God is wanting to pour out blessings for us in Christ, just like he did with Israel. But God's saying to Israel that your iniquities, your continued sin, it's keeping you from the very things that God is trying to bless you with and wanting to bring you into relationship with him. So what do we do with this? I pray that um, anytime I do a study of sin, it shows me in my heart that a lot of times I don't take sin in my life serious enough of really what sin does, not just to me, but what it does to God because God loves us and sin hurts him. And I know that anybody I love, I don't wanna do something over and over and over that's hurting them. I don't wanna do that because I love them. In the same way that our motivation to turn to righteousness isn't because we're just afraid of God or we feel bad about our sin, but it should be because we love him. And I know that I'm guilty of this. I come to the point where I've realized I've been worshiping myself. I've been being self-confident. And that's why, like John says, the purpose of his letter, which is true of all of scripture, is to help us stop sinning. And that's why it is so important to be in the word every day. Because the Bible shows me ways that I am sinning that I might not even know that I'm sinning. That the Bible says it's like, a, it's like a double-edged sword that cuts between our soul and the intents of our heart. Sometimes my intentions feel good, but my heart's actually wicked. And I can't tell the difference between the two unless the word of God shows me through the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's so important to be in the scripture every day because we need help. 
We can't do this on our own. This isn't something that we can just feel bad and try harder. But this is something that we need the power of God and the truth of God to help us with. So as we read, really, the, the damage of sin, you would think the next scripture says, and because of this, God is angry. And because of this, God is about to punish you. But instead, he says in verse 2, or sorry, at the end of verse 1, he says, but if anyone does sin, for anyone who does worship themselves, to anyone who is rebellious, who is self-reliant, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. And this is the good news, that Jesus Christ is our advocate. And this word advocate is the same word that's used of the Holy Spirit, uh, paraclete, which means to be our helper, to be our intercessor, and to give us power. And so what, what John is saying is God, Jesus Christ has not only died for you to forgive you, and Jesus Christ has not only died for you that he will comfort you, he will help you in your struggle against sin, but Jesus Christ will also give you the power to overcome your sin. And this is the good news of the gospel is not just that we can die and we can go to heaven, but that you can have the power to change now, that you don't have to be a person who's a slave to sin. You don't have to be a person who's a slave to depression. You don't have to be a person who's a slave to your circumstances. That things with God are going well until things get hard. And then we don't feel like we have the power to continue to be a disciple of Christ. That's the promise that Jesus Christ is our advocate. He is the person who intercedes um, between us and God, who has paid for the penalty of our sin, who will comfort us, will encourage us, and ultimately will empower us to live a righteous life. And I love this word propitiation. I know some of your versions might say atonement. Um, it might say sacrifice. But the reason I like this word is because what this word means is it means a substitutionary payment. And so two people are switching places. That's what propitiation means. And so on the cross, Jesus Christ, the righteous, was treated like a sinner. He was treated as if he had done every single sin in the book so that you and I, who are sinners, could be treated as if we were righteous, to be treated as if we have lived a perfect life. And that's, again, the message of the gospel, that if we put our faith in Christ, he doesn't see us for our sin. That the Bible says that he sees you as holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. He doesn't see you as a sinner who's trying hard. He sees you with the same righteousness that Jesus Christ had because Jesus switched our place. And the question for you and I is, are we grateful for that? Have we really received that message? That I deserved hell, I deserved the wrath of God, but instead of getting that, God has given me a helper, he's given me an advocate, he's given me power, he's given me blessings, he's given me promise, and he's given me righteousness that I can be assured of my salvation. Not because of what I've done, but solely because of the finished work of Jesus Christ and receiving of that, I can know that I will spend eternity with God. But here comes kind of the tricky part, and this is what we'll, we'll be, be finishing with. Verse three, he says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever, asks, or whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now this is a tough scripture. I want to read real quick um, 
a cross-reference in John chapter 17, verse 3. Because we see this statement that the Apostle John is making. He says, by this we know that we know God. So how do we know that we know God? And he specifically says here, by keeping his commandments. Now we're going to see, what does that mean? Does that mean we got to keep every single commandment in the book? And if you don't, you're not saved? I don't believe that's what John's saying. But he is making a pretty um, substantial statement here of how do we know if we genuinely know God or whether or not we actually are deceived in our knowing of God. In John chapter 17, verse three, Jesus says this. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And a lot of Jesus's teachings, he uses this phrase to know God as synonymous with salvation. They aren't two separate things. You don't have salvation and not know God. And kind of a a term that we've coined in even our American church is um, salvation is about having a relationship with God, which is very true. That salvation leads to us of knowing and experiencing and walking with God. And we see that in, in John 17, three, that Jesus is saying eternal life is about knowing God. That's what the purpose of eternal life is, is for us to know him, which we will do for eternity. But that starts now of do we know, do we walk with Christ now? And that is evidence that we will know him for forever. I wanna read two scriptures that, um, again, are, are really challenging. They're really, again, pretty black and white. And what he's getting at is not that we are saved by our works. We are saved by grace through faith. But I will challenge you and encourage you with this, that the assurance of our salvation, the confidence of us knowing God does come through obedience. I think that's one of Satan's biggest tactics for the believer is to get us to live a life of sin so that we do doubt our salvation. And when we start to doubt our salvation, we're open to all sorts of attacks from the enemy. But what John is saying here is when we live a life of righteousness, of obedience to God, that's where the confidence and assurance and peace between us and God is going to come from. So the first scripture is actually later in 1 John chapter three, verse nine. And one uh, fall campaign challenge I'd like to uh, give us, partially because it's a short book, but to find some point in the next few weeks where you could read the whole book of First John together as a, um, just in one sitting. Because what you're gonna see is a lot of these thoughts, he's super repetitive. And so you can really get the heart of what he's saying as you read the whole book. Because in 1 John 1, 5, he's saying, by this we know God if we keep his commandments. But now in chapter three, verse nine, he reiterates this, but even in kind of a more specific way. He says this, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now again, John's being pretty clear here because there was again, major division, major confusion within the church. And he's telling the church, don't be confused. There's not like five different groups of people out there. There's people who are serving God and there are people who are serving the devil and there's really only two. And how do you know the difference between the two? First John says, those who practice righteousness, those who are living in and by the word of God are those who are of God. And those who do not live by the word of God 
are those who are of the devil. And he doesn't talk a lot about their intentions, by the things they say, but it's by the way that they live their life. If you turn with me to Matthew 7, um, Jesus says kind of the same thing. And I think this puts it in even a clearer perspective for us to walk through. And he says in Matthew 7, verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And, there, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Same thing that's happening in the book of First John. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you'll recognize them by their fruits. What's the number one way to know a false prophet according to the Bible is not always what they teach, but it's the way they live their lives. Because a a good teacher can have a bad teaching, doesn't make them a false teacher. Because a, a good teacher who loves Christ, if they have a bad teaching, you come up and you correct them and you show them the scripture, they're gonna change because they love God, they love you, they love the scripture, right? But a false teacher is somebody who's good at deceiving. And the way to know whether or not someone is teaching and and representing the word of God, again, isn't always by what they say, but it's about how do they behave when no one else is watching? What do they look like behind closed doors? And what does their life, what is the fruit of their life? In verse 21, he continues and says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So we see a picture here of people who come to God on judgment day and are saying, Lord, Lord, I know you, I know you. But yet God in return is saying, but I don't know you that you didn't live according to my word. You, you didn't know me. And I know you didn't know me by the way you lived your life, by your fruit. He says, instead, you were workers of lawlessness. Even though, again, they were doing good things, prophesying, casting out demons, seems like good things. But see, sin and righteousness is not just a matter of physical action, but it's a matter of our heart. And one of my favorite parables that I think captures this well and this has been big in my life, is Jesus gives a parable of a a Pharisee that's coming to pray. And he comes and he prays and he says, thank God I'm not like the prostitutes. And thank God I'm not like the tax collectors. And thank God that I tithe, I go to church, I fast. And he lists all these things that he's doing. And then another man comes up who's a tax collector. And the tax collector says that he can't even look up to heaven but he puts down his head and he beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, on that man is who I heard his prayer. 
And see, when we recognize the depths of our sin and we recognize the holiness of God and we recognize what Jesus Christ has done for us, what it does, it gives us a heart of brokenness, gives us a heart that loves God. It gives us a heart of humility, a heart that's easily corrected. And we can be struggling. We can be struggling in our sin, but yet our heart, and again, not just intentions, but our heart, our devotion, we are devoted to changing. We are devoted to getting help. We are devoted to going to God, going to our advocate and asking him at whatever means necessary for him to change our lives and for him to, for him to encourage us. And to wrap up, I want to read our last section of um, 1 John for today. Uh, verse 7, he says, Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the, time it is, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. See, again, the thing that, that sin does when we justify it, it blinds us. And we don't, we, we don't have any spiritual sight. We can't discern what God's asking us to do. We can't discern what's true and what's not true. That the only way to have discernment is through repentance, is through running to the advocate, asking him for the help that we desperately need. But I want to close with this example because I think the, this um, picture of love and hate is really important. I think it can give us an example of how do we know if we're living in the commandments of God. And I think of the aspect of forgiveness. A lot of times hatred comes from bitterness and unforgiveness. I think all of us have been hurt. We've been offended. And so I think everybody in this room could relate to having to forgive. I think there's three different kind of scenarios that can happen when we've been hurt really deeply. Is one, um, as deeply as we've been hurt, we recognize that God has forgiven us more than he's ever going to ask us to forgive anyone else. That we've offended God more than anyone else has offended us. And because Jesus Christ has forgiven me, I am going to forgive. And that's the message that Jesus preaches in Matthew 18. Now that's kind of the A plus disciple who just says, hey, I'm gonna do it because Jesus Christ said, and it's easy for him. And that's awesome. And that's a place of maturity when we can do that. But I think the second option sometimes is we've been hurt so deep and that person who hurt us is not repenting, doesn't really care. And it's a struggle. It's hard to forgive. But the difference between the believer, the person who keeps the commandments of God is they don't justify it. They don't say, you don't know what that person has done to me and I'm never gonna forgive them. But what they do say is what this person has done to me has hurt really bad and I'm, work, I'm working on it with God. I'm taking it to Christ. I'm getting help. I'm getting discipleship. And it may take 15 years to forgive that person, but that person is dedicated to seek God so that they can forgive and they can love in the way that Jesus Christ has commanded. But the third person is the person who, who justifies their sin and says, you know, no matter how bad, this person has hurt me so bad and this situation is so ugly, I don't have to forgive. And what the Bible is really clear about is we cannot have that attitude and be a Christian. Jesus says we can't do both. And it's not because you're losing your salvation. It's not because you're earning your salvation. It's because it's evidence of what's actually in our heart. 
Because when Jesus Christ makes us born again through the spirit of God, he gives us a heart of forgiveness. And when we're unable to forgive and not just unable, but unwilling, saying, I will not do this. Um, that is evidence that our heart is not changed. And that is what for, uh, the apostle John is getting at. How do we know we know God? How do we know that we've been changed? Because he's changed us. Not because I've changed myself, but because God is the one who has changed us. So I wanna invite the worship team um, up and just give an encouragement for us today when we evaluate this scripture is again, our life can be confusing. Um, life can be hurtful. Um, and we, one of the biggest blessings I believe for the believer is assurance, is confidence, is peace. And if there's anyone here who doesn't have confidence, doesn't have peace, doesn't have assurance in your relationship with Christ, I would say today um, would be the time to do that. And um, I just wanna encourage you, whether it's talking to me or talking to one of the elders, pastors here, reaching out to somebody, if you're unsure of that, I'm telling you, God wants you to be assured and have peace I mean, in your salvation. Really, I believe it's something that's required um, for us to live a victorious life. When we're doubting that, when we don't have peace with God, um, we're gonna have a very hard time in overcoming our sin and living the life of righteousness that's described here in 1 John. So I wanna pray for us um, as we close um, here in worship. Father God, I thank you for your faithfulness. God, and I just pray for each one here, Lord, um, that there's anyone here who has not um, received your gospel, Lord, or has realized that even though there was an intellectual acknowledgement of you, there's never been a devotion to you, Lord, that you haven't changed their heart yet. I just pray that they would know that if they would repent of their sins, they would trust in you, God, that you will change the heart. God, that you won't leave us in our sins, but you will give us the power to change and we will experience freedom and what it means to be a new person, to what it really means to know you, to have a relationship with you. God, I pray for those who have been discouraged in their walk with Christ, um, who haven't been able to overcome sin, who have been trying. God, I just pray that you would give us the endurance to continue to run to the advocate, Lord, to continue to run to Jesus Christ, knowing that not only will you forgive us, not only will you comfort us, Lord, but you will, you'll give us the power. But sometimes we have to be persistent um, in seeking you. God, so I just pray as we go through um, this series in First John, God, that we would learn to walk as you walked, Lord, that we would learn um, what it really means to love like Jesus Christ has loved us, that you gave, gave it all, Lord, you gave your very life and you took our punishment that we deserved. God, so I pray that we would be a people who don't just profess you with our lips, Lord, but that it, in our lives, it's evident that we are, we are disciples, disciples of you. So I ask you and pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.